Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16 today. I like to watch this show where they are buying and selling items and they are assessing the value of items constantly. It's called Pawn Stars. You've probably seen it before. It's like a pawn shop and people will bring in items that they want to sell and, and what they will do is they'll assess the value of it. If they have to, they'll bring in an expert to assess the value of these items and how important that is. And what you find by watching that show is a lot of times the value of an item is reflected in what somebody's willing to pay for it, right? This passage today, we see the heart of a true worshiper. And we see the value that she places on Jesus Christ. Her name is Mary, that we learn from the Gospel of John. It's not stated in this passage. Here is the heart of a worshiper that ascribes great worth to Jesus, and it's reflected in this wonderful act of worship that she displays. And so we learn today about the heart of a worshiper. If I had a title for the message, it would be on the screen right now, and that would say, The Heart of a Worshiper. Verse 1 of Matthew 26 says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, it starts out by saying, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Well, what sayings? We just came out of a section called the Olivet Discourse. That's what theologians have referred to it as. And, and you remember why. It's because it was a sermon or a discourse or a teaching that was given on the Mount of Olives. And so there you have it, the Olivet Discourse. When these sayings were finished, this sermon about end times, then Jesus said to his disciples that you know after two days is the Passover. So we're in Holy Week at this point. You guys have heard the term Holy Week. It's the time around Easter. It begins with Palm Sunday. So at this point, Jesus has come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, rode in on the donkey, the fulfillment of Zechariah, prophecy in Zechariah. He cleansed the temple of the money changers. He drove out the, the, the crooks that were in the temple that were making money off of selling you know, uh, sacrifices, and they were exchanging the currency for exorbitant amounts. He's went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders, right? The religious authorities have tried to just destroy Jesus at every turn, every point that they could, and he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, and he pronounced woes on them, and he silenced the religious leaders. And then he answered the disciples' question. Remember, uh, he, they asked him, Jesus, when will the destruction of the temple come? When will your coming be the second coming? And when will be the end of the age? And he answered that question, those questions, through the Olivet Discourse. Now we're done with teaching from Christ in Matthew's gospel. The rest of it is narrative. It's just a description of these very last days of Christ's life on earth. There's just a few chapters left in Matthew, as I'm sure you know. And it's been a long journey. We've been in Matthew for, you know, well over a year. And it's coming to this. This is going to be the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry is when he went to the cross to die for the sins of people, you and me. He says here that you know that after two days is the Passover. 
and that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus tells them the exact day that he's going to be crucified. It's going to be on the Passover. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with the Passover, it is a feast celebrated by the Jews yearly to commemorate when God miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He put 10 plagues on Egypt every step of the way saying, Pharaoh, you know, he was the ruler of Egypt, let my people go. And it went back and forth 10 times. You guys know the story. You've seen the 10 commandments, you know, and, and you understand the story from the book of Exodus that God's people were in uh, harsh treatment under the Pharaoh and, and God raised up Moses and he was going to lead his people out of slavery. And he sends 10 plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh says, oh, I'll let your people go. Oh, I won't let them go. And he keeps changing his mind. But then the last plague comes and God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the angel of death through Egypt and I'm going to kill through this angel of death every firstborn in the land of Egypt, all except certain houses. Now, these certain houses, they had to have one qualification, they had to have the blood of a lamb, of a spotless lamb, painted on their doorpost. Now, when the angel of death would come, that angel of death would see the blood painted on these doorposts, and that angel of death would then pass over those homes. Now, that's what the Passover is about celebrating the fact that death passed over the homes that were painted with the blood of the spotless lamb. Now, there's an extreme significance in the fact that Jesus was crucified on the Passover, and some of you can already tell what that would be. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, I want to read a verse to you. It says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, what Paul is saying to the Colossians there is in the church of Colossae, people were trying to judge the Christians and saying, oh, you need to keep the Sabbath. You need to do these rituals that the Jews were doing. And Paul says, don't let anybody judge you according to any of these ancient festivals or religion or rituals or, or whatever. He says, don't let anybody judge you on that. And he gives the reason why. And he says, those things were a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Now, think about it. What does a shadow do? Well, the shadow is not the real thing, right? But it casts an image of the real thing. Like there, there's something real that, you know, the sun is shining on, on the other side of it is the shadow. So when Paul says that these things are a shadow of things to come, included in that would be things like the Passover. So here you have the Passover. You have God skipping over the homes, passing over the homes that are covered with the blood of the lamb. And this is a shadow of the things to come, which the substance is of Christ. What God is saying, what Paul is saying is this thing that happened back in Exodus at the Passover, that's pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I never knew that when I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. I just thought, here's this cool story about how, uh, I guess it's not that cool. It's kind of gruesome and, and terrifying too, but it's cool that God hopped over these houses. He passed over them. And I didn't understand that that was a shadow that was pointing towards Christ. See, these people have been celebrating this festival every year in which death did not visit their house because of the sacrifice of the lamb. And it's pointing them towards Christ. And when Christ came and he fulfilled this, it's very significant that he died on the Passover. Do you see the significance that Christ died on the Passover? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, he says that Christ is our Passover. That lamb that was slain, Christ is our Passover. Then the chief priests, verse 3, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the place of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the religious establishment at this time, they're plotting and they're scheming to kill Jesus by trickery. Now, Caiaphas, this guy was a Sadducee. He was uh, the high priest of the Jews at this time. His reign was a lot longer than other high priests, which uh, points to the fact that he was good at cooperating with Rome. He wasn't so well-liked uh, by some of the Jews in that regard. And he's the one in charge. This is the guy that would be instrumental in condemning Jesus to death. By the way, Josephus notes that a couple of years after his death that he committed suicide, and, and that's Josephus, the you know, historian, the Jewish historian around this time, said that it's got to him that he, uh, you know, for the murder of Christ, and he committed suicide. But notice what they say there, what Matthew says. He says that they, they said, don't kill Jesus during the feast, lest there would be an uproar among the people. You see, this Passover festival every year, Jews that were within the vicinity were commanded to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. So the population of Jerusalem would go up like fivefold during the Passover. And what Caiaphas is saying here, what they're saying is, let's kill Jesus, but let's not do it on the Passover because there's so many people in town. Now, you guys that know the story, Jesus ends up dying on the Passover to fulfill um, you know, this prophetic picture, this shadow, he fulfills this thing. And it's, I think that's really interesting to stop and think about for a moment, that even though man is sitting here saying, yeah, let's kill him, but let's not kill him on the Passover. He ends up dying on the Passover anyway, fulfilling this beautiful typology from the Passover. And, and uh, it makes you realize that God's plans are higher than man's plans, right? Man may have an agenda to do something, but God can correct your agenda and do what he wants to do instead, right? Now, Next point here in verses 6 through 13, we are going to see that, you know, tucked in this story, there's a story of a gal named Mary who anoints Jesus' head with oil. Verses 6 through 7, uh, she's going to anoint Jesus' body with fragrant oil. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. So they're in Bethany. Now this is the east side of the Mount of Olives. And there is this house that was a place of refuge for Jesus during this last week of his life. He frequently, we see him retreating there uh, during this incredibly difficult point for Jesus. And this was like a house of refuge for him. 
And they're at the house of Simon the leper. And I'll tell you, every time I've read through this, I always kind of just went right over that detail. I was like, yeah, Simon the leper, he's got leprosy or, or he did have or whatever. And I hopped right over this detail. I think it's fascinating that they're at the house of a man that is known for having leprosy. Do you know why? Because according to Jewish law, if you had leprosy, like you had to totally isolate and be by, your, you had to stay away from people. In fact, when you went in public, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, because you had a sickness and you had to let everybody know, stay away from me, right? And this man lived in isolation for almost all of his life. But here we have Jesus in his home. And as we read and we go on here, we're going to see that he's having dinner. When we read John's account of this, that they're having dinner in Simon the leper's home. And that really struck me this week because there are people that have been like untouchable and isolated until Jesus has done something in their life, you know? And presumably right here, this man, Simon the leopard, maybe leper, maybe his, his uh, name stuck with him. But at this point, he obviously doesn't have the leprosy because there are people in his house, right? That's a beautiful picture that Jesus makes it to where people that have been isolated because of their sickness, maybe because of their sin. Maybe you can really relate with this today. You can say, you know what? Because of my sin, I pushed people away from me my whole life and I was isolated because I was selfish or whatever else it was. But Jesus heals that sickness and this man has been touched by Jesus. Imagine his joy. I'm having a dinner party at my house when I used to have to yell unclean, stay away from me. You know, when you read John's account of this, it tells us that there's another guy at the table named Lazarus. You guys know Lazarus. This is a man that had been dead, and Jesus called him out of the grave and said, come back, Lazarus, and here's a man that has been raised from the dead by the power of Christ. What a dinner party. You got a man that's been healed of his disease, and you got another man that's been brought out of the dead, and this is the house where Christ resides where he's at, and where also Mary and Martha are there as well, two well-known saints from the scriptures. What a beautiful place. But what a, what a contrast, though. This is the last couple of days of Jesus' life. This is an incredibly difficult time for him. He knows that he's going to the cross. He told them, he says, on the Passover, I'll be crucified. And now he's in this house with this dinner party of these people that are just bearing witness to his greatness. And this woman comes in, and we know from John 12 that it's Mary, the sister of Martha. Someone that truly knows the worth of Jesus. And she takes this alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil. This is spikenard, is what they call this. A certain type of a scent, a certain type of oil. And she has a very costly, fragrant oil here. Now, it tells us later on in the passage that this oil was worth 300 denarii. Now, that is like a year's wage. Imagine that. Your whole paycheck for a year for this thing. Now, a single woman in this day and age was in a very vulnerable standpoint, right? There weren't programs to take care of people today. People didn't, you know, women didn't make much money in these days. This was, she was in a very vulnerable position. And this possession of hers was no doubt her greatest possession, right? This is worth more than anything that she has 
no doubt. This is a form of security in a sense. You know, you think about today, you think about some of the things that you rest on for your retirement possibly or, or things like this. This is an investment. This is a, an asset. And she takes this oil and she comes in and she breaks open, you know, this, is, this would have been a, a sort of flask that would have had to been broken open at the top. And she comes and she pours it over Jesus' head as he sat at the table. This is an extravagant display of love and devotion to Jesus. This is an act of worship. Now, can you picture being in this room? This stuff would have been so fragrant, like a few drops of it would have just permeated the atmosphere. And can you imagine you're sitting in this room full of these healed and resurrected people and in the power of Christ and the greatness of Christ and this thing happens and there's disciples in there and everywhere in the room is the aroma of this woman's worship, this woman's display of her love for Jesus Christ. But when his disciples saw it, verse 8, they were very indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Why this waste? We know that from John 12 that this is Judas. He says something that sounds very spiritual. Why this waste? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. Why did, you, why did you spend everything you have like this? Certainly we could have fed poor people with this. And, and maybe some in the room were buying into it, being like, yeah, you know, Judas has got a good point there. That was 300 denarii. Think of all the kids we could have sponsored, you know, or whatever it is. And there were probably people buying into that in the room because that language sounds very religious and very spiritual, very critical of this woman's act of worship. harsh. Aren't there those like this in the world today that they criticize the way that other people worship Jesus? What a waste of time. You read the Bible? You spend this great resource of time going to church? <laughs> you spend all this time studying this book? You do what with your money? You give it to this Church, you sponsor kids, you give to the poor. Aren't there those people that are like that? There are people that criticize other people's forms of worship. I remember hearing a story one time I was at a pastor's conference and, you know, like there have been some of our charismatic brothers and sisters in church history that have gotten into like flag waving in churches. Have you ever seen that? You know, like during the worship, they'll, they'll have a worship flag, I guess. I'm not, I don't know. And down in the front and just waving a flag back and forth, you know, or, or some churches have gotten into, you know, doing, people are painting, you know, during the church service and, and these other forms of worship, you know. And I got to tell you, you know, I was like, you know, kind of, I'd look at those things and say, that kind of is distracting, you know, from Jesus, you know what I mean? Here I am trying to worship, and there's this flag going in front of my, you know, like this worship flag, you know, and like, and uh, I can't believe you guys haven't seen stuff like this. And I was at a pastor's conference one time, and this stuff was rolling through my head, and um, the pastor, you know, essentially was talking about the same thing. And then he goes, you know, for those of you that are judgmental about the way that other people worship the Lord, 
you should just remember that they're not doing it for you, <laughs> you know? You might look at a church down the street and say, I just don't really care for that because they sit there so quiet during the whole time. They don't even get up. They, maybe they do liturgy and they, they stand and they sit and they, you know, I just don't like that. That is so dead. That's such a dead church, the way they do that. And you'll hear people talk like that. And those people, like myself at that pastor's conference, need to be reminded that they are not doing it for you. So you should stop it. Don't be like Judas. Because Judas is what he's doing what the devil does. And he's sowing seeds of criticism, division. And it sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Judas needs to be told here it is none of your business what Mary does with her oil. Here's this woman chosen to pour out the very best she has for Jesus. And this super spiritual sounding criticism tears her down. I could even picture her maybe wanting to run out of the room crying at this point. Notice Jesus' response to this, verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me... You do not have always, for in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a, a memorial to her. So Jesus defends her act of worship, right? Even though there are people criticizing the way that she worships the Lord, Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a good thing. And in fact, everywhere this gospel's preached, and that, that's a fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? Here we are today talking about this woman, and Jesus said it would be so, right? This happened again to her. Do you remember the other time this happened? Where there was a Bible study going on in their house, and Mary had chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus, while Martha was busy serving and distracted with many things, the Bible says. And she, Martha, even rebukes Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet and even rebukes Jesus and says, tell her to get up and serve with me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're troubled by many things. She has chosen the better portion. She has chosen the one thing. Jesus said to Martha, he said, one thing is needed. What is that one thing? It's a heart of devotion and adoration and worship that understands the true worth of Jesus Christ. What is he worth? Mary thinks he's worth it all, even though people are criticizing her. I just love that, that Jesus defends worship. She was determined to give Jesus her very best, and she did. When he says you'll always have the poor with you, he's not saying don't take care of the poor. He's saying there are going to be opportunities to serve the poor always, but you're only going to have this one window of time where he's there in the flesh. This is Jesus Christ. This is God in the flesh. And he's, he's receiving her worship. He says that she did it for my burial. Now, that was a custom in those days that you would anoint a body with oil at a funeral because they didn't have embalming. They didn't have all these other different things then. So it would be appropriate to it anoint a body with a fragrant oil, so the smell, you know, and different things. And so Jesus says that she did this for my burial. Now, I don't know if she knew what she was doing. I assume maybe she did because Jesus had talked frequently about his death. 
if that's the case, that would be an indicator that she's probably the only one that really understood the Bible lesson, you know, because he'd told so many times about his impending death. And here she is anointing him for his upcoming death. She was probably the only one that was really getting it. And maybe that happens when you choose to sit at his feet and you understand his true worth. Jesus received that too. Did you notice that? He didn't stop her and say, no, 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 Mary, that's your, that's your investment. You go ahead and... It's interesting that Jesus received that. Number one, that points to the fact that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is receiving the worship of people and he's not God, then he's in big trouble. And he receives that because he knows his true worth. When you want to pour out every single thing that you have in your heart and in your life for Jesus Christ, he receives it because he knows his true worth. He knows that he's worthy of it all. What did she receive? A lot more than what she gave, right? Judas goes down in history forever as the betrayer. Mary is memorialized for the devoted heart and beautiful act of extravagant worship. Then... One of the 12, verse 14, called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? So Judas says, uh, you know, I'm not going to get my needs met or my wants met by worshiping Jesus. I've figured that out. So now, how much will you give me to sell him out? And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. It's also the price of a slave in Exodus 21, 32. How much are you willing to give me if I sell Jesus out? Jesus, Judas' greedy desire for money could not be fulfilled if he followed Jesus. So he betrayed him in exchange for pay from the religious leaders. John 12, 6 says this. This is really instructive about what's going on in Judas' heart. John 12, 6 says, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used it to take what was put in it. This Judas, he pretended like we could have sold this ointment and given it to the poor and all this stuff, but really John tells us what was really going on. By the way, John was written in like 90 AD, the Matthew in the you know, 50s, 60s. So John had this perspective of looking back at all this stuff and he knew what was going on and he said, this is what was going on in this guy's heart. He was a thief. He didn't want Jesus. He wanted what he could get out of Jesus. And I want to notice, I want to, let's notice that, what he says there in verse 15 of our passage. What are you willing to give me? Now, I want to suggest this to you today, that that is the heart of Judas. What do I get out of it? Right? And I want to suggest that that is the heart of generations of generations of people. What do I get out of it? What's in it for me? You know, you think about people asking their kids to do something and they'll say, well, what do I get out of it? And you're like, oh my goodness. Wow. But there are people that approach Jesus like that. Well, I don't know, Jesus, I mean, I'm busy. So if I'm going to be dedicated to church and part of the body of Christ and, and I'm going to be dedicated to doing the things that you've called me to do, well, let me ask you, Jesus, what do I get out of it? Really? That's the heart of, Jesus, or of Judas right there. What do I get out of it? Mary's asking, she's going through her house going, what can I give? 
What can I give? There it is, the most precious thing that I have. I have nothing greater than this to give. And I, I'm, I'm wondering what I can give to Jesus. I'm gonna, I, I know what. I'm going to give him this very precious, the, the most precious thing that I have. I'm going to go pour it out on Jesus. And Judas is saying, what do I get out of it? 30 pieces of silver. They must have thought that was an answer to prayer, those chief priests. You know, seriously, they must have been like, oh, God is truly blessing us. Now we've got a betrayer to take out this blasphemer, right? Now, from that time, verse 16, they sought the opportunity to betray him. Now, this is just how the enemy and the flesh work. Jesus, uh, Judas could not get his greedy desires satisfied, and so now he's somehow determined to betray Jesus. In conclusion, we learn from Mary what a heart of a worshiper looks like here. First thing that we learn, I'm just going to point out a few things. We're going to reflect on what we just learned here a little bit. The first thing that we learn from Mary is no cost was too great. The fragrant oil was worth a whole year's wages, but to Mary, the worth of Jesus was much greater. She gave her very best to Jesus. There are always those that are asking, what can I get? And then there are those that are always asking, what can I give? And it's just that way. If there's a cost in your life that is too great, you have to ask yourself if you truly understand what Jesus is worth. The cost is too great, Jesus. You're asking me to be dedicated to church and giving my time and getting in the word and serving people and, and doing, you know, and, and living for you. You're asking me to live for you. The cost is too great. I'd have to ask you, do you understand Jesus' true worth? You see, true Christianity isn't a threat put on everybody where it's like, if you don't do this, God's going to be mad at you. That's not, what, that's not what true Christianity is. True Christianity is I've seen the value of Jesus Christ and now the love that I have for him because of his great value, nothing else compares to that. And that motivates what I do. You know, I don't stand up here week after week and we don't do the things that we do. We don't go to church week after week because we think we have to. We do it because we've seen the worth of Jesus. And so it's an honor and it's a blessing to pour out every single thing that I have for Jesus Christ. Do you understand Jesus' true worth here today? I mean, salvation. He saved you from death, from hell, from an eternity separated from him dead in your trespasses and sins, living an empty life of serving your flesh. He, he saved you from that. Do you understand his true worth? Without his blood shed on the cross, you're destined to hell and that's it. Do you understand his true worth? Is there a cost that's too great? Well, she understood that there was no cost that was too great, that Jesus was worthy of it all. Next thing I want to point out is her worship was directed towards Jesus. Now, you might say that seems really obvious, but let me think through this. Judas is a vivid picture of Satan here, okay? He pretends to be very spiritual. His deceptive words sounded very Christian. But what he really wanted was money for himself. Now, Satan sounds very spiritual. He disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Judas was in control of the money bag. And so he wanted that money, watch this, to come to that money bag so it could come to him. He wanted the worship that is supposed to go to Jesus to end up going to him. And that is exactly what Satan's been doing ever since he was kicked out of heaven. Do you know why Lucifer got kicked out of heaven? He says, I will be like the Most High. I will be God. And God kicked him out of heaven. And ever since then, he's been trying to get the worship of Christians, of anybody, and get it directed to him. And he's so slimy, he doesn't care how he gets it, just as long as it doesn't go to Jesus. Satan wants worship that should go to Christ alone, and he doesn't care how he gets it. Did you know that everyone worships something? Did you know that everybody worships something? What is worship? Okay, it's a simple word when you take it apart in the Greek language. It means worth-ship, fellowship, stewardship, worth-ship. It's taking worth and ascribing it to something. It's saying this is worthy. Now, Everybody worships something. In fact, I was in Ames yesterday with my wife on the way back from a pastor's conference, and we ate at a cool restaurant and everything else, and we had a really hard time making it through town because there was a game in Ames. Now, you say, people don't worship. I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, if you are painting your face, screaming at the top of your lungs, bowing, doing the wave, paying hundreds of dollars... You are worshiping. Why do you think they call it American Idol? Because it's idolatry. People worship. Everybody worships. Humans are wired to worship. Every man, every woman has a God. The reason you got out of bed this morning. Maybe you got out of bed for video games. Maybe you got out of bed for comfort. Maybe you got out of bed because you're trying to find love. Maybe you got out of bed because you're trying to get money. Maybe you got out of bed today because you are trying to be powerful. Maybe you got out of bed today because you think family is the most important thing. Maybe you think being respected is the most important thing. Maybe you think your looks are the most important thing. Deep down, when you're honest, every man, every woman, every kid is directed by some master governing idea about what makes a worthy life. Everybody does. Everybody lives for something. Everybody. Now, Satan has placed all kinds of things in this world to direct the worship that belongs to Jesus Christ to himself. You know? What are the things that you have determined in life are worthy to sacrifice for? How many hours do you sacrifice to your phone compared to how many you sacrifice to Jesus? Think about it. The worship that Mary directed towards Jesus, Satan came in and tried to get directed towards him. And he even did it by sounding really spiritual. 
I have a hard time with that too. My phone reminds me every week. It says, your screen time is up 27%. I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know? I mean, think about it. Think about all the things in life that we ascribe worth to and we sacrifice for. We make sacrifices for these things. Are they worth something? Are they worth it? You know, this, this lady understood that Jesus is worthy of it all. And she poured out everything. Something, right? You have to know that the enemy is working all the time to get your brain and your hands and your heart and your eyes worshiping something other than him, than, than Jesus. The enemy is working all the time through distractions. You say, well, these things aren't harmless. Really? You've got so many days that you're going to be alive on this planet and things are taking those days from you because you're ascribing worth to them and you say that that's harmless? The song we sang is on purpose. Teach us, O oh Lord, to number our days. Right? Man. So Mary, no cost was too great. The second one is her worship was directed towards Jesus, not some idol of her heart. And the third thing that I want to point out is that she didn't listen to the voices. She didn't listen to the criticisms of these people coming in and no matter, oh, who are these disciples? Who, who's the staff member at this church? Who is this? He might be an associate pastor if he's sowing the seeds of the devil. Don't listen to it. If any voice comes in your mind and says, you know, you're a, you're a Jesus fanatic, don't listen to that. It's too great. The cost that you're, what you're giving to Jesus is too great. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that voice. She's a living illustration of someone that does not serve two masters. Remember, Jesus said you can't serve two masters because you're going to love one and hate the other. You can't serve money and God. You can't serve anything and God. There's only one place for God in our lives, and that's there's only one God. There's only room for one on the throne, right? And she understood that. Jesus is worthy of it all. She knows it. Jesus has her heart, and it is shown by this wonderful outpouring of worship, her affection, and devotion. Here, I, I want to take this, and I want you to pass this around. I'm going to take the lid off this. This is spikenard, and so I just want you to smell it. Now, if you're allergic to spikenard, don't smell it. <laughs> Just pass it around. Just pass around the whole place and get, put it on your hand if you want to even. It's oil, you know, just, you can put some on your hand. Don't be shy. And as we're closing this message, I want your mind to think about this. This is the smell, like, you know, of this woman's worship in this place. This is what, she poured out every single thing that she had for Jesus. I want you to, even though we're kind of distracted now with this thing, I want you to listen carefully. Jesus was about to go to the cross. Now, in this culture, in this day and age, they didn't take a bath and a shower like we do today, right? And she poured this on Jesus' head. And this stuff is fragrant. And I want you to think about the fact that just in, you know, a couple days, Jesus would hang on the cross. And as Jesus would hang on the cross... Dying for you, pulling himself up by the nails through his wrists, trying to gather breath. No doubt he would be smelling this woman's perfume as he took his last breaths. You know, scholars tell us that when someone dies from crucifixion on the cross, they typically die of asphyxiation because you just can't get breath into your lungs. So what you have to do is you have to try to lift yourself up by the nail in your feet 
and then you can't do that anymore, so then you have to pull yourself up by the nail, nails in your wrists. And as he gasped for breath, this may have been some sort of comfort to him, right? The smell of this woman's adoration and her absolute devotion to Christ. As this smell filled the scene. whole flask poured out upon his head, no doubt. But that was a great comfort to the Lord in that moment. Jesus is worthy of it all. This woman's act, pouring out all in worship, do you know that what it prefigured, though, was Christ going to the cross and pouring out his blood for our salvation? It points towards that. Jesus Christ was fully spent at the cross because of his love for you and for me. The value of something is reflected by how much somebody's willing to pay for it. Have you ever thought about that? How much was Jesus willing to pay for you? He paid with his life, right? So what does that say about your value to him? He was willing to give it all for you. What does that say? Some of you don't feel very valuable today, especially if you spend too much time on Instagram comparing yourself to other people. To Jesus, you're extremely valuable, so much so that he'd pay his life for you. What can I give Jesus? This truth just floors me that I'm that valuable to God. <laughs> what can I give, Lord? Jesus is truly worthy.